Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Luc Lalonde, a musician you may know from his band Born Ruffians or his own solo projects. He also co-stars in Pavan Mundi's new comedy Sundowners, making his acting debut as a hapless wedding photographer. Sundowners opens this Friday, August 25th at the Tiff Bell Lightbox. Luke picked Adaptation, Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jonze's masterful 2002 comedy about the contorted attempts of screenwriter Charlie Kaufman, played by Nicolas Cage, to turn Susan Orlean's The Orchid Thief into a Hollywood studio blockbuster while coping with interference from his needy twin brother Donald and, eventually, external pressure from the author and her subject John LaRoche, played respectively by Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper. We talk about Hall of Mirrors kind of movies on this podcast pretty often. I think people just like them and they come up a lot in conversation. Adaptation might be the perfect version of it. Everything refracts back on itself, through itself, and through Nicolas Cage's amazing dual performance. Chris Cooper won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, but Cage was pretty much deserving at least as much of Best Actor, and maybe two times, because it's a dual performance that's amazing. But, you know, awards aren't everything. Sometimes it's just enough to do the work. This is someone else's movie. Just running through movies in my head of movies that I'd seen a lot that I felt I could talk some somewhat intelligibly intelligently. No, either way's right. <laughs> about both. Yeah. Um and I liked something that I saw kind of as I was coming of age. I saw I guess when I was 16. It came out in 2002. Yeah. I was 16 when it came out. I remember seeing it shortly after it came out. I probably rented it. And I just remember it being I saw it before. I think I went back and watched Being John Malkovich after. But it was one of those movies that changed the way I saw movies, I guess. Like, it has... It's so different. It, had up to that point, was so different than anything I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. And... um, It also... It got me into Charlie Kaufman as a writer because he writes himself into the movie and elevates himself beyond screenwriter to sure. something else and uh, um, it just put me on a path I guess of watching movies differently I think um, and so I just thought it'd be a really good one and it's still one of my favorite m- movies I rewatched it last night and it's still just I think just so good I just love it so much um, yeah when I just wanted to pick something that I loved so That's that was just came floated up to the top it's a good call too I mean it's I, I can't I was trying to figure out how old I must have been I would have been 34 when it came out and I had already seen being John you know I I was aware of of Kaufman and I knew what he did and still this was um, just so marvelously odd Mm -hmm. it's so I would love to have seen this when I was when I was younger and more impressionable right because you think going in as an adult, you know all the tricks, you know all the beats, you know pretty much what to expect. And 15 years later, now even, I don't think there is another movie that does that the way this does it. I mean, there was immediately, there was Identity, which pulls the twist from the three, right. six months later, to the point where, and they were both released by the same studio, to the, to the point where I was wondering, like, does did Kaufman quickly come up with that and fold it in because he was so he heard about that and thought it was a stupid idea? Because it's just as valid an interpretation as anything else. Yeah. Is that it's a reaction. I also found out last night after looking at some Wikipedia articles that The Three was made into a book and then a film as well in 2003. Sorry, it wasn't made into out of, the, out of this movie, but right. there was a book that came out called The Three with striking similarities to... Donald Kaufman's really? uh, screenplay. Is it possible that Charlie or Donald planted that on Wikipedia? I don't know. Charlie as Donald has put Maybe, that on but there's also a Wikipedia page for the film that was made for it. <laughs> it has like 5% on Rotten Tomatoes and stuff. I am not aware of this. And there's like this big plot synopsis. It could all just be this elaborate, you know, yeah. because he put Donald as a screenwriter. He, he was nominated for Oscars and stuff, right? Yeah. So maybe it is just a continuation of that prank. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't dig too deep on it to try and find it, but it had like the cast listed and everything. And 
Um, maybe it's all just maybe I'm just falling for the ruse. It's okay. I don't but mind it, if that extends into the real world like that. Yeah, it feels like that's what this movie should do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, 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 it does. I mean, it. Th- there's something because yeah, being John Malkovich, he breaks all these rules that are set up intent, and he breaks them intentionally. Rules that I otherwise hate, like in being John Malkovich. John Malkovich isn't the title of the movie obviously so you know he's going to be in the film somehow and yeah I remember seeing it just being like that's so strange what is this even going to be and I otherwise like I hate when that wall is broken in movies when somebody when an actor like in Ocean's 12 or whatever when Julia Roberts Roberts is being Julia Roberts I can't get around those kind of continuity errors where I'm just like, wait, hold on a minute. Right, your brain is fighting the movie. Yeah. There's no mention of any of that up until that point, and it's just thrown in there so haphazardly that it's kind of like... Oh, you mean that early scene where he just says, do you ever think she looks a little like, and they never quite get around? Like, Oh, they do say that? Early in the first scenes of the second movie. not in, It's not in Ocean's Eleven, but it is in Twelve. So, okay. It's this weird moment that just hangs there. I just think it's kind of like uh What's the word see this is another term film term that i'm going to get wrong probably from adaptation as well i mean from a lot of films the thing uh, 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 does does oh, does ex machina yeah god from the machine that's how i feel about that julie roberts play but that's how i but it has her because through some villas which I is so great because they played fake versions of themselves in the player like it's such a long bond yeah, that's okay, Mary. Okay. but when it happens I guess I'm, I'm botching the sports metaphor myself I was like it's a big long <laughs> throw but when it lands it's just like holy shit they're playing fake that's still fake Bruce Willis like if we're in the world of the player that, what does that mean so there's that I guess one could argue there's probably some elaborate fan theory online oh I'm sure that ocean the oceans uh, series of movies take place in some alternate reality where Julie Roberts is a famous actor, mm-hmm. but George Clooney, right. Matt Damon, Brad Pitt, you know, all of the, the, yeah. they're not in that reality. Well, Only Julie Roberts exists. There is actually reality. evidence to support this. <laughs> God help me, I'm going to go there. In the first one, in Ocean's Eleven, because it is my favorite moment in that entire movie, there's that poker game scene where uh, Danny and Rusty, Clooney and Pitt, are playing poker with... I think Topher Grace and somebody else, but they're a couple of movie stars, a couple of TV stars. Yeah. And when they leave the game, the TV stars get mobbed and George Clooney and Brad Pitt just walk, walk away, away unnoticed and unbothered. So they they're comment on that already. They're, they're like, very playful. Those guys are the real movie, are the real stars and Danny that's how Danny and Rusty can just walk away. They're not famous. Yeah. But it is like at the time two of the biggest movie stars on the planet. Okay. Just, just having this little moment where they're playing nobodies. You're pulling me over to this side, okay? I'm telling you, there's See, there's concrete proof here, <laughs> and I like that kind of. I mean, I I'm not saying I'm not a fan. Of, I like those those ocean movies. Um, I'm a huge fan of The Sting. That's one of my favorite movies, mm-hmm. and I think the Ocean's movies are like the modern version of that, taking like the, these huge actors and doing this kind of fun heist movie where you just it takes you on this really fun ride, like you don't. And they do it so well. Um, yeah. Well, Soderbergh told me once that he, those are his superhero movies. Like, they're the closest he thinks he'll ever come to making superhero movies because okay. people have magic powers. They just, it's the power of planning. <laughs> it's just, I think he really admires people who can, because he makes movie after movie about it, and people who can come up with these incredible schemes. Huh. But, uh, yeah. They, and they're delightful. They are. I The whole trilogy, I'm, I'm a big, big fan. Yeah. They're here somewhere. What do you think about the the... They're rebooting it, right? With an Ocean's Eight, cast. yeah, the female, the all female cast, uh, Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy, I think, are the two leads. Are they? Or is gonna... it Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett? I can't, I'm, I'm not track. sure. Actually. I'm trying not to find out too much about it, but mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. It's, you know, it sounds good. It sounds like a good idea. Why not? Heist movies are fun. Yeah, so they're just gonna. They're not remaking Ocean's Eleven, right? It's, it's kind of an so. extension of that franchise. Yeah. It's a similar. Well, the cast photo has all of them on a New York subway train, so hopefully right. that's like that's going to divorce it completely. Right. So it's like one of those things where they, they could have called it anything. They just chose to relate it to that franchise, so you know, like, this Which, is a Soderbergh joint. It's yeah. going to be... He's not directing it, though. Oh, he's just, like, producer Someone or something? Else, yeah, he's produced, executive producer, I guess. Okay. But um, I'm in. I'm there. Eh, yeah. Why not? It sounds like fun. Yeah. Just, you know, a bunch of people using their weird skills. Yeah, <laughs> and Logan Lucky is a lot of fun, which will have just opened by the time this episode comes out. His, his okay. new film, which is also a heist picture, 
by way of the Coens, kind of, because he's using Channing Tatum and uh, Adam Driver and Riley Keough as sort of idiot siblings who aren't idiots. They're just they're West Virginia coal folk okay. who are planning a speedway heist, and of course, much smart. I, I think he's been watching Letterkenny. There's a real there's a real Letterkenny vibe to it to the language. Know. Oh, it's the, uh, it's Jared Kiso's show about. <clears throat> People in the small town of Letterkenny, it's, they shoot okay. it up in uh, Sudbury oh. or Timmins or somewhere, and it's just this weird central Ontario comedy. It's really fun. Hmm. Uh, there's three seasons of it already. Oh, it's on yeah. Crave TV. There's so many shows. I, uh, oh, God, yeah. I find out about a new show every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's exhausting. No but, it's, but it's fun. No offense to Letterkenny fans. No, no. But, okay, I'll check that out. Yeah. And Logan Lucky does feel like the, the bastard child of the Oceans movies, Letterkenny, and maybe Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Cool. Yeah, and in well, the best possible way. Yeah, I'm a big fan of of that. That sounds like something that I might like. Yeah. Cool. And then that weirdly brings us back to adaptation in the idea that the properties, existing properties, are never enough for people. That you always need more. And the adaptation of The Orchid Thief, which was thought to be an unfilmable book, is what drove... Kaufman to write this version of it where almost out of spite it becomes a crime thriller and a, mm-hmm. and a romance and a comedy and all these other things mm-hmm. and somehow I still don't know how he does it some innate subtextual metatextual thing he lets me know while I'm watching his movie that he knows what kind of game the movie is playing with me the the film is the film lets you in it invites you and and I'm sure Spike Jones is part of that too because he's he's really good at this sort of direct communication storytelling yeah uh, it happens in her it happens in well it definitely happens in being John Malkovich where the movie is letting you know when people are making mistakes the movies are the movies letting you know when it's okay to worry about somebody and then in this case it's like oh no no we know exactly what we're doing there's a confidence to it that is just terrifying yes i mean how do you know you can make this work it's so well executed and so well written and then the direction like it's just handled so flawlessly and it's yeah it's remarkable like you watch it and it's letting you know i think i was trying i was trying to remember the first time i saw it and that mm-hmm. feeling of of those layers of the of the onion kind of un- unfolding before my eyes and going oh Oh, it's about oh wow, yeah. and then it's like one more, and then, and then yeah, he's letting you know, he's kind of winking at you, and showing, showing himself and showing like his true intention with the movie, and giving you all of those things that he sets you up to hate all of those things, right? He sets you up to kind of loathe his brother Donald. At least when I was maybe I saw it when I was that age of very serious and very. Um, trying to find myself as it's just starting to become a songwriter kind of and um, but struggling with all those things that Charlie Kaufman struggles with in that movie like having moments of and I still struggle with this now watching it I'm just like this is still I still very much identify with that uh, you know breakthrough 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 you're inspired inspired and then cut to slapping your forehead you're worthless everything right. you don't know anything about the world you don't know anything about anything what are you doing you don't deserve to write anything about it. and then and then breakthrough again. All you like that that final breakthrough in the car, when he is sitting there and it's like all I am qualified to write about is myself. And he decides to write himself into the script. And um, you see, how he lets you know, and he call he refers to himself as I think solipsistic and just a like oh that's one of the most narcissistic things you can do. Yeah. Thereby letting himself off the hook because you're sitting there. You could be watching the movie going like, this screenwriter's kind of a... He's really full of himself to write himself into the movie. But then, obviously... And I'm, I'm, I think I'm getting off topic from what no, you were talking no, about. No, no, no. This is those, all relevant because of the nature of this movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's very revealing and honest and vulnerable. And I think he probably... I think that's why it's so good and why any album or any any book or whatever is so good. Um, it doesn't hold back. In fact, it almost digs in deeper to his... Because Charlie Kaufman is like a... You know, a, a, a fit, kind of shorter guy with a nice full head of hair or whatever, but yeah. he... 
him and Nick Cage, and I don't know who would be involved, but like he creates this version of himself that's, you know, balding and bigger and more neurotic, more sweaty and nervous and whatever than Charlie Kaufman is, who is masturbating throughout the movie <laughs> to these kind of embarrassing fantasies, and he's not afraid to like make people perceive him that way and yeah. kind of let it all, um, which I love. I think that's just so cool not to i don't know it's a pretty good jiu-jitsu tactic too right like show show yourself at your worst so people have nothing oh i know i do this i know this is me like you can't hurt me dan Harmon talks about this all the time like if he's the first person to call himself a fat idiot no one else can it's like well okay but that still speaks to a basic self-loathing right Right. you're still acknowledging yourself as this debased version of yourself i mean even if this is charlie kaufman's worst case scenario it's pretty worst like it's it's and and donald who becomes slicker i guess as as the film progresses he's the i don't i, I still don't know if if donald is the, the like, i don't know how charlie feels about that side of himself the side that is donald because mm-hmm. he's clearly the externalized version of the successful charlie right but i don't know if the, the ambivalence that charlie has towards donald as his talent like rejecting everything and being you know, screaming about the truth of everything and how important it is to be honest. And then still, the movie we're watching is Donald's movie. Right. It's totally the movie that Donald wrote. By the end of it, it, it sort of detaches. It's like watching the Mental Brothers in Dead Ringers in a... Wait, no, I'm, I'm making a mess of this. What I, was, what I thought while I was watching this, like, oh, this is what the Mental Brothers would write once Beverly collapses from his own neurosis and Elliot picks it up and thinks, oh, I can fix it. It's the same kind of strange dynamics. There's no clear sign watching Adaptation again that Donald has fixed the script. Right. We don't know when that starts. But I think, looking back, I'm trying to figure out on rewatching whether or not I'm supposed to conclude that this whole thing is Donald's script. That he has done a polish on Charlie's version. And so all the stuff about Charlie hating himself is actually how Donald sees Charlie. Oh, that's interesting. And then Donald gives himself the noble out dying right and he gets to be like because he's so he's such a naive writer that he loves all of his own ideas but then the movie validates the ideas as you watch them so if donnie wrote it then of course it would right like it's 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 this incredible high wire act of writing mm-hmm. where the real charlie kaufman clearly knows what happened at every phase of the screenplay but we're seeing if i'm right it's the polished of the polish of the one of the page one rewrite written by donald as a way of shoving it in charlie's face <laughs> like that's what this is this is the victory lap that donald is taking after getting full authorship right because that's a that that makes a lot of sense i mean <laughs> he writes donald upon rewatching it now as a 31-year-old, not a 16-year-old. Right. At 16, I think I hated Donald. Okay. I was like, you're just mainstream bullshit, whatever. Yeah, screw you. Charlie's the real deal. He's suffering for his art. And this time, Donald is a very sympathetic character. Charlie's always very mean to him. And yeah. you just kind of want him to just go give your brother a hug. He's just trying to he's just trying to get on his feet and write something. Yeah, he's not as talented as you, but you should be nice to him because of that. You should be really embracing his... Uh, the fact that he's going for it, that he's trying to write something and do something, encourage him. And you're just... Charlie is kind of an awful character in the movie. And therefore, yeah, that makes sense that it, you're actually reading this Donald script. Or the, the Donald's vision of Charlie. That part yeah, of, yeah. Of, of the real Charlie Kaufman's. Which, again, is like very meta because it indicates the ultimate sort of self-loathing or self... Because he, he's saying, like, this is who I am. Like, that's me. Like, I could be this other guy, but I'm just kind of awful. I'm kind of a prick or whatever and uh, a coward and all of these things. Like, um, until the very, very end. I don't know. I mean, the end is sort of maybe he absorbs that part of his brother or something. He feels happiness for the first time or whatever. But And if Donald is writing it, then what you're seeing is you'll be sorry when I'm dead. Like that right. weird, simple sibling uh, petulance mm-hmm. of a kid who doesn't, you know, you don't like me enough, I'll show you. Mm-hmm. 
and it's yeah either way it's really fascinating it's mm-hmm. this, it's this puzzle box uh, every time I watch it I'm just I'm staggered at its its fluidity at how easily it makes all of these transitions and yeah you were saying when, when you're watching it you just can't believe it's happening uh, at the press screening I saw there were maybe 15 of us in a small screening room and every person was digesting and reacting to it differently on a different schedule you would hear every now and then you'd hear someone else go oh, or <laughs> oh and I was doing it too although I think I was just sitting there going fuck me look at this they're doing yeah. it uh, but yeah people it's like listening to it's like flashbulbs going off in a room you just hear pow 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 right right but never all in sync yeah everybody just processes it and there is nothing there's something about that error maybe it's just him that early 2000s late 90s um I, I, all of his movies from that time and still I'm still a huge fan I liked Anomalisa a lot mm, I loved it yeah. I thought it was beautiful and just so strange and interesting but there's no and this is just he, he's just so genius to me I guess it's you can't expect there to be it's not like oh Hollywood's not making edgy interesting movies it's just there's no other Charlie Coppins out there maybe there are I'm not saying he's leagues above everybody else but no, he's what a other singular movies are there even though, like right? that? Yeah. You know, that are kind of that. And where it's, I think, where its true brilliance is, is is going back to all of that. How he embraces all those things and gives you the ending that the execs want, and you still like it. As a as somebody who watches a lot of movies, you still liked that ending, oh, right? Yeah, like sure. he gives you kind of what you want. He gives that audience member what they want, in spite of themselves, in spite of the fact that. You might be sitting there the whole time going, yeah, it shouldn't go there. It shouldn't do those things. It should just be this kind of simple movie about... Um, but then he gives you all these things, and it's great. Because a lot of the time I'll watch a movie, I don't... Uh, like mainstream movies, whatever, those superhero movies, for example, or mm-hmm. I go see them for some reason, I hate them, and I just talk <laughs> shit about them and how much I hated them. and I can barely get through the last 20 minutes, half hour of those movies, or watching movies on planes a lot of the times I'll just turn it off in the last 20 or 30 minutes because the endings are so boring you know exactly where they're going to go Yeah. but he somehow gives you the thing you could have predicted where it's going where it was going to go maybe but he gives it to you in a way that's so it's it's so satisfying yeah it's like and it's so great and I will always love the end of that movie and that to me is the sign of a really really good movie is that the ending does deliver like the screenwriter uh, in the, uh, he's a real sc- screenwriter. The guy he goes to a seminar oh, and yes. te- he's um, teaching uh, his oh. brother how to write. He's doing those big yeah. conferences or whatever. Um, um, Robert McKee, yeah, played by Brian, Brian Cox, Cox. magnificently. Such a good scene. Who is that. not Robert McKee at all? But yeah, oh, okay. McKee has all these things about story and how screenwriting has to work and the requirements of genre and the things that you need and I'm and, sure he has catchphrases that I, that I refuse right. to even acknowledge and he says get him in the final act or whatever mm-hmm. well and, and, and there's this he, thing because if you mess that up people are going to leave the theater and the, that, but that's what they'll remember which yeah James Cameron talks about it too he right. calls it the recency effect if you can land the last 20 minutes it doesn't matter what else you did for the first 90 or in James Cameron's case it's the first two hours right. it's just which you need to sell the ending I think that's taking your I think that's uh underestimating your audience i totally disagree with that but mm. it might he, they might be talking about to get a hit or something you know because it's kind of like music too if you're if you're if you're really underestimating your audience that much maybe you shouldn't be <laughs> making you know like you should give the audience more credit yeah. you can't just be like we'll just dangle some crap whatever blah 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 and then just make sure the ending's good because that's all that matters because people can't remember the first hour of the movie like no they're gonna they're gonna be going that first hour was crap the ending was okay so it's a crap movie yeah. you know like I, I rarely find myself <laughs> rallying in the second half of a film I'm not yeah. enjoying right yeah um, but there are I mean you also you know, like you know when a movie peaks in the middle that you've seen those too yes like we all have oh certainly um, so I think I think in terms of storytelling and drama you the human brain wants a big finish mm-hmm. or a shattering moral lesson or something like you mm-hmm. need to come out going oh that's what this was about yeah but adaptation is about what it's about from the word go. Yeah. So even if the like by by that measure, the ending being the ending that it is is ingenious because it is telling you the whole time that you're going to be pandered to mm-hmm. by the end. 
And then when the pandering comes, you can still appreciate the fact that it works dramatically while having the lantern hung on it that it's still pandering. Like you, um, I, I think about Total Recall a lot when I think about adaptation because it's another film that very clearly lays out what sort of movie you're going to see. And even there's a point where someone says, you know, like, oh, Blue Sky on Mars to set up the ending, <laughs> which is fine. But then there's also that point in the midsection of the film where someone comes in and does the info drop to Quaid, where he says, "You're going, you know, your best friends with the enemy. You're gonna, you're gonna, you people like up will be down, black will be white. This is gonna happen. That's gonna happen. And it all does. It all happens. Right. And it validates the idea that this is a dream. Right. That this is an engineered fantasy sequence that he's trapped in. And the whole point of Total Recall is it doesn't matter because right. if it's happening to him, he's into it." And at the end of the film, you know, you're basically walking away from the end of Brazil with a guy comatose in a chair. We just don't see the chair. Right. And people are still fighting over whether or not it's a dream. Of course it's a dream. It tells you it was a dream. <laughs> nobody in adaptation, nobody sees adaptation and walks away confused unless they weren't paying attention. Right. But the movie is so elegant about telling you what's happening and why. The mm-hmm. why is more important, I think, for, for Kaufman. As, a, as an external screenwriter, just as in Eternal of the Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, it's not about the thing. It's about the guy holding on to his memories and how these two people are destined to be in love with each other forever, even if it's toxic. Right. Uh, being John Malkovich isn't really about the portal. It's about being so blind. To, like, the theme is there. Yeah. But in adaptation, it literally tells you what the theme is from scene to scene mm-hmm. through Charlie whining. And... And through Donald being proven right, it's it's so great. It plays like a lecture without ever having a lecture. And then it has an actual lecture from right. McKee in the middle of it. Yeah. Just to remind you that this is what it's about. Yeah. Or what it's not about. It's about the impossibility of finding a story that satisfies or the impossibility of adaptation. Or, you know, in, as far as it relates to the, to the Susan Orlean book, it is impossible to make a movie out of The Orchid Thief because they did it, but it still is unfilmed because it's not about that. No. But it kind of is. It kind of, yeah. And that's another brilliant part of the movie, too. Because mm-hmm. you leave it feeling like you saw an adaptation of The Orchid Thief somehow. Because you get some version of that story. Um, and those characters become so real. In part because of the performances of just an amazing cast. But mm-hmm. yeah, we you leave it feeling like page, you've seen... Really. Yeah. You've seen this these three stories of, 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 of John LaRoche, Chris Cooper's character... Meryl Streep playing the, the author, the Susan Orlean New Yorker writer, and Charlie Kaufman, who kind of eclipses them all. I wonder what the screen time is for... Like, Nicolas Cage feels like the lead, and it feels more about okay. Charlie Kaufman than anything else, which is very bold for a screenwriter. Right. I, I have read that when he handed the script in, he was extremely nervous. He didn't tell anybody that he was taking it in that direction. He just finished it and handed it in. And also that he was terrified, kind of, or just nervous to meet the real Susan Orlean. And the first time they did meet was on set, apparently. <laughs> and he walked... He, the, I, I think Spike Jones or somebody was just like, Oh, the, look at this, everybody. The real Susan Orlean and Charlie Kaufman meet for the first time. And, and, and she kind of laughed and was like, Oh, this is embarrassing. And he said something like, Something along the lines of, yeah, oh, this is embarrassing for you, this is very embarrassing for me, and he just, like, walked away, and he didn't, he, he that was it. He was, like, t- he just couldn't handle it or whatever, hmm. because of what he had done, I guess, too. Well, as, I a, always, as a writer, right? Like, you'd have yeah, that's so a much really respect bold, in theory. Yeah, a very, I, it's such a, I think, <laughs> bold move putting himself out there, a very bold move to fictionalize Susan Orlean, use her name. Mm-hmm. And make up all the stuff about her, and kind of make her at times a not very likable character, right? He kind of Meryl Streep plays it so well, but towards the end, she's kind of pathetic too. Yeah. You're just she's addicted to drugs, and she's trying to kill him, and you're just like, ah, oh, you kind of hate her as well. Um, and that's very interesting that he was willing to take that character to those places as well, and it's great, but it's like. And she, yeah, I, I, I was trying to find a candid interview with her, the real Susan Orlean, where she talks about it. She's very, I think, kind and diplomatic about her answers. And But I had to get the feeling that she's not super stoked with the <laughs> fact that people are going to, whether or not you leave the movie knowing that's not the real her, you still, that 
that will eclipse the you know anybody yeah, yeah, that reads the New Yorker or whatever well, exactly. and those are articles might kind of but the movie version of her is going to probably be the one that goes down in history right yeah. like well, or just based uh, on the metrics of how many people see a movie versus, versus how many people read a book right yeah, more exactly. people will think of Meryl Streep when they hear Susan Orlean's name yeah so that could be her legacy of yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting um that is who, who plays it she's such a likable character too Meryl Streep plays it so well I mean and that scene where she does the first time she tries that weird drug whatever from the orchid right it's probably my it's one of my favorite scenes it is where she's trying to get him to do the dial tone with her and she's brushing her teeth and things slow down and she just she's so good like she she pulls you in to the movie you she's the type of actor where you're watching it and She's so famous, and she's so known, you know her, but she pulls you in, and you find yourself just, like, like pulling you from your heart into her character, and you're just so there with her, and you completely forget the fact that you're watching a movie. Yeah. The, the she thing does that, that Streep, all the time. Streep's greatest strength as an actor in comedies is that she shows you how much fun she's having as an actor mm-hmm. without ever breaking character, and mm-hmm. I don't know how she does it, because mm-hmm. it doesn't shouldn't make sense like it should fight the concept especially here where literally everything depends on you accepting what's on screen like there are two Nicolas Cages running around in this movie and each one is differently eccentric and it is a magnificent performance yeah. I mean it really is yeah. I'm just I, I'm I'm on Cage's side most of the time with his choices I think he's a fascinating performer and he's we talked when, when Bad Lieutenant came through I got to interview him and oh, cool. we talked to, oh, it was great. It was great. Um, we talked about his, like the, basically his musical scale approach, which is like in, for Bad Lieutenant, he had to figure out exactly how high he is in any given scene and they didn't shoot in sequence. So he grafted out like a chart, like a musical scale, up, down, and everything in between. He needed to know exactly where he was. And it wasn't just a, I'm a two, I'm a three. It was, what is this drug doing to my up? What is this drug doing to my down? can I speak through the makeup in this one thing? Like, it was it was incredibly detailed. Hmm. And when you see adaptation, it's like, this is a this is minor key, but it's just as thought through, it's just as intensely considered, and it's mesmerizing. Mm-hmm. And then you put Meryl Streep in there in full comic mode, and it doesn't shatter the illusion that you're watching two Nicolas Cages and a Meryl Streep and Hasey Chris Cooper doing his thing with the teeth. And just like... Yeah, everybody in here is acting so differently and somehow in harmony. And somehow the concept of the movie allows me to appreciate all of these notes that should be clashing up against each other. But instead, it's just like, look how how high we're getting. Like, look Mm -hmm. how crazy we are going. And we are not going to stop. And then it, yeah, it all fits. It all meshes together. Yeah. And it is... A comedy, but it's not also like nobody's performance is pure comedy or anything, really. Like, it's all so genuine and heartfelt. And man, Chris Cooper, yeah, is so good in it and creates this kind of character that the plays this kind of guy that I think everybody kind of knows somebody like this a man or a woman, um, the kind the really smart, dumb guy or something, very intelligent has all of these kind of ADHD with his interests and absorbs everything and and retains all this information but is also kind of prone to vanity and um, just sort of he so charming too though like he he makes that character so real like there's so many little things that he does that uh, that are great when he when she gets in his van kind of and he's (laughs) trying to impress her so he's like yeah, the van's a real piece of shit. I'm going to buy something cool when I hit the big time, though. And she, he's like, what kind of car are you driving? And she tells him what rental. And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll probably get one of those, too. Like, <laughs> in the way, there's just something so funny. And that's, like, the writing, but he just pulls it off in this way that it's just so brilliant. Like, he's just so, I don't know. He's so Everything he does, he's great. But that role in particular is so, it's just so complete. Like, it's so good. Yeah, it's the, it struck me as neediness. You like he needs to be he needs approval from everyone else, uh, but his way through it is to just peacock. Right. So he's gonna browbeat you into liking him, 
and yeah. it shouldn't work, but you like Cooper. So in the end, it works. I mean, it's the same reason that Streep can sell Orlean as a, a miserable, broken drug addict and still be charming and lovable is because the actors are so committed mm-hmm. to making you love them, mm-hmm. the neediness. And it's the reverse. Again, it's like you could interpret it, or at least I interpret it, as Donald writing them as more pathetic because that's how Charlie feels. And so he's trying to give Charlie what Charlie thinks Charlie wants. Right. Or he's trying to honor Charlie's patheticness in this rewrite. Yeah. And I don't know. And either way, I'm really satisfied with it. Like, it's just, (laughs) it's a pleasure to puzzle over these things because they keep giving. Like, there's so much, there's a vein of, of empathy and compassion inside the brotherly scorn that, yeah, is that what I'm supposed to take away? Is the real Charlie Kaufman writing an imaginary brother who respects him more than he respects the imaginary brother? Right. And why would he do that? And what does that mean? And where do, where does this door go? And how does Spike Jones feel about it? And I don't know. I don't know the answers. And I don't think I ever will. And I kind of like that. Like, I don't want them to tell me what they were thinking mm-hmm. if I ever talked to them. Do you think that there's... How strong do you think the aspect is of, of Donald versus Charlie representing simply two different parts of the industry of screenwriters right. or, or two different sides of the coin of taste versus um, popularism or something. I don't know, like, yeah. well, like I think, good taste versus bad taste. Uh, well, it's giving art people, house versus commercial, right? I mean, it really does boil down to that. Yeah. Do you, like, do, I guess some people could watch it and just simply see it as that's all the brothers are. It's just the two sides of Charlie Kaufman of good taste versus just doing something that I know people will like for money because I'm, I'm smart and I can do that too um, and showing how he's denying that side of himself and he's giving you something more interesting or whatever but then embracing them both I mean I, I guess just simply those two characters like how much do you think that he was just trying to talk about that simply yeah I just, think they I think they represent his like the twin poles of ambition yeah. You know, he really... I do think Charlie Kaufman wants to write a blockbuster. I think he mm-hmm. wants to do that. And, of course, you know, casting Nicolas Cage after The Rock and Armageddon... Not Armageddon, the other one. Uh, the Rock and Con Air and all those movies that he made and Face Off. Like, when he made this movie, he was kind of backswinging into independent and, and art cinema. But he was a $20 million man for a while. And I think the idea of having him in this little movie that's about the argument between art and commercialism that's a choice as well. I think it's probably more about Jones making the choice to use him because Cage mm. would have wanted to make the movie. It was up to the director to say yes or no, I think. Yeah. But... Tom th- Hanks was apparently considered I, for the part. That's interesting. I don't know that that would work. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, he could I, play Donald, but maybe not Charlie. Nobody wants to see Tom Hanks play a loser. Yeah, I don't think he would have pulled it off as well. Nicolas Cage has something about his face. He can... He can be very good looking and strong and whatever and be the kind of hero bad boy con air thing but he can also appear very homely and very he, he just does something with his posture or whatever like he yeah, yeah. he has a kind of duality about him that I don't know if Tom not that Tom Hanks is a heartthrob or anything but I don't it, I think it would have been a little more comedy if Tom Hanks did it I don't it wouldn't have been the same movie I think you're well I definitely agree with that and I think Cage, too, never really talked about this. He, a couple of years earlier, he was supposed to play Superman, right, for Tim right. Burton in that yeah. project that fell apart. And Superman, yeah, I'm less interested in that, but I would have loved to see his Clark Kent. Mm. I would have loved to see what he did with that. Yeah. Because it would have either been just a total craven caricature of humanity, like in Peggy Sue Got Married, where he's playing the loser that this that Kathleen Turner's character sees him as, and it's just this huge, ugly mess of neurosis. He's like I think this is the closest we come, uh, with Charlie playing Clark Kent essentially, and and Donald being Superman because ultimately he's the successful supportive hero mm-hmm. of the movie, even if Charlie doesn't think so. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why you get Cage for this because yeah, as you say, you, he can do both. He can make himself lovable and pathetic in the best sense of the word, but he'll also do whatever you ask of him. Like he won't stop and worry about. Like Tom Hanks, I really like Tom Hanks. He's an interesting person and a generous actor, but I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's a way for this movie to work with him. 
Yeah, at least not as yeah. It's it's funny to picture things though after they're done. When you read on IMDb, so and so was considered for this role. Right, right. Oh man, I couldn't picture that at all. It's always for me really hard to picture it. But that one, I really just can't. The whole thing, I can't picture with anybody else. Meryl Streep apparently was. This is <laughs> people listening are just gonna be like, you just read the IMDb page. Yes, I did. <laughs> but Meryl Streep was apparently on board right away. Read the script, said it's one of the best scripts I've ever read. I want to do this. Was willing to do it for no money or take a cut take a pay cut um which i find so cool as well she just knows what's up she, nobody had to convince her or pull her arm she's read it and went this is different this is cool i can do this this is going to be one of the best movies of the year um i just find that really interesting and it, it, not that oh chris cooper and nicholas cage had to have their arms twisted to do it or anything it's just one more thing that makes her just seem like such a smart actor such as just knows what's up all the time yeah it's just that thing right like you have enough money you can do one yeah. for less money if you really <laughs> yeah. believe in it yeah what was the thing Nicolas Cage apparently through due to his gambling debt or what oh, was it? I think he, he likes to buy castles and dinosaur bones yeah is that it so he, he either just spends too much Seems money or harder. gambles it away or whatever hmm. but there was a time there where he was he said he would do any movie for a million dollars, oh, five whatever, million dollars. helps him pay off the IRS. Yeah. So, which is why he was doing, for years, these just really questionable roles. Where he's, he's like, wait, He's still is... doing this. Right, yeah. He's never really still. So he's put the call out and said, I will do any movie if you just, this is my minimum. I'll do it, though. Just to, like... Yeah. I and almost, some of them are great. Yeah, I almost respect that decision because, in a weird way, it's probably opened him up to more stuff than he would have been offered yeah. otherwise. And then, yeah, and you get something like uh, like Joe, which is Joe just is great, a tremendous performance. Yeah. yeah, I like that movie a lot. And that kid who plays the kid, oh, Tosh Sheridan, he's a great, great young actor. I think he's really, really good. He's got. He's gonna be, if he plays his cards right, a sort of Tom Hardy kind of mm. yeah, good-looking guy that does good, like takes interesting roles, and yeah. you know. And he's in the new X Men movies, so he can, oh, you know, he okay. can afford to do the other stuff. Yeah, it's funny. We were talking about superhero movies a little while ago about how they're, they are generic. They're they're sort of it's true. All the Marvel movies up until recently have ended with a big thing falling out of the sky and everybody racing to stop it. But I, I at this point, I'm kind of fascinated by the machinery involved because they will end like you and I will be in one at one point they will end up <laughs> casting literally everybody uh, the same way everyone in downtown Toronto has probably been in broken social scene at one point or another <laughs> we will all just because the, the worlds keep expanding and the roles keep coming and you know like Brie Larson is Captain Marvel now and right. somebody else just got cast in something and, and uh, like Peter Nyong'o is in uh, Black Panther and mm-hmm. all the they're going for interesting actors and so now those people can make these movies and then make five other movies because now they're internationally known. Uh, John Boyega was telling me about making Detroit because he made The Force Awakens. And, you know, you're in Star Wars, you're marketable everywhere. Right. I assume it's got to be the same for Marvel and probably for DC now, too. So Ty Sheridan making all of these indies and then doing an X-Men movie or two, it's like, it can't be difficult. I mean, you you know, you wear a silly goggle and you run around and you st- do stuff in front of a green screen. Yeah. And then you go home and you read other people's scripts and you make their movies. I, I, if nothing else, like I'm really glad that the vehicles exist now. If we have to split so clearly between gigantic blockbusters and indies and the middle ground has disappeared, yeah, then at least they're making those smaller movies possible, I guess, yeah, through financial deals. Oh, absolutely, yeah, but yeah, you're right, and they're they're all kind of samey, <laughs> they're all pretty, yeah, aside that, you know, there's a couple, I, I liked, um. I liked Logan. I liked Deadpool enough. I liked uh, uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy movies because they're just a little more fun, funny, entertaining in ways. They, they do something slightly different. Uh, yeah. Well, they try, yeah, they, those, they're allowed to move outside the, the very specific uh, tunnel right. that all of these others take place in. Yeah. But those, and I guess when I was saying, like, oh, he'll do Tom Hardy caliber roles or whatever, yeah. But I mean, and he played Bane. He, he was Batman, exactly. Yeah. But that's Christopher Nolan Batman. That's like almost. I don't even think of those as superhero movies. But I don't think that there's. I don't know if an actor could do a movie so crummy or so whatever that it's that big of a skid mark on their resume that oh, I lost all respect for them. That's for sure. I mean, same with the. Uh, yeah, they do that in real life now on Twitter. 
Yeah. Like that, that's where people destroy themselves. Yeah, that's true. You don't do it through your choices. Yeah, stay off, stay off social media. That's probably the best advice. Um, but, the, and those, the, I mean, Elizabeth Olsen, I think she was talking about it on Fallon or something. Because she's another one that just that's true. chooses, she's in a lot of very interesting, very cool movies. And I, I think she's fantastic, but she, she did that Marvel movie. And she was kind of, I, I could tell... She, not begrudgingly does them, but it's. She she kind of gave a pretty candid glimpse into what it is like to do them on Fallon. She was talking about yeah, you just kind of, they spend like two days getting, five seconds of footage of you, moving your hands like this, and you just have to kind of like, look and do this like a thousand different ways, yeah. and then they just cut it together like it's not really acting. They just they're just kind of propping you up, like a. She didn't say this. I'm putting words into her mouth now, but you could picture it being, you just get propped up like a doll. Hold, right. do this. Okay, now, like, a little bit more this way. And do it again, do it again. And then there's not too much acting going on. There's not a lot of dialogue. It must be very strange to do those movies. Um, but also, like, yeah, why they, they get a nice paycheck. They work for a few months, and then they can do whatever they want for the next couple of years. And yeah. I do find it interesting, though, to see... Actors, I mean, and this is the other thing, is it actually a conscious choice when Jeremy Renner and Elizabeth Olsen, you know, Hawkeye and, and the Scarlet Witch, who both, who have a rapport in in Avengers, in Ultron anyway, they both end up as the leads in Wind River, and what are you talking about? You know, like, is it because one of you was reading the script on set and the other one just like, oh, this could be fun? Yeah, I wonder. And at that point, is that how these movies get made? Because now you can say, oh, I have these two actors and they're right. going to do it together. Or then you see something like, Spotlight. That was the one I was talking to. Uh, I'm just dropping names left and right. I'm so sorry. Uh, when <laughs> no, Tom, it's your job when to... Tom McCarthy came to TIFF yeah. um, for Spotlight, and he was talking about how they're not sure how to market it. And, you know, it ends up winning Best Picture and Best Screenplay and all of this stuff, but he's having his jitters. And it's like September, and the film hasn't screened yet, and he doesn't know how it's going to play. And it's like, just tell people you have like, Batman, the Hulk. <laughs> And there's one other major... Oh, uh, uh, Sabretooth, I guess? Whoever Lee F. Schreiber plays in the Wolverine movies. Oh, yeah. It's like, all of these guys have done superhero movies, and then subsequently Rachel McAdams is in Doctor Strange. Okay. Eventually, you can look at any movie and, and describe it as, oh, this is the one where Thor is um, Steve Trevor's father. And that's the first <laughs> Star Trek movie, because they'll all have just interwoven each other. Yeah. They'll... they'll <laughs> They'll overwrite them, and now people come up with like I, I hate fan theory ultimately because it gets in my in the way of me writing stuff. But I can see you know ten years from now people are going to write about how Spotlight is a movie where all of these superhero crossovers are happening, but they're all in their secret identities, and so they don't know. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> or someone will cut together a, a Superman movie with footage from Henry Cavill in some other movie, like all that stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, it Cage. He made two Ghost Rider movies mm-hmm. and somehow made it okay because he's yeah. having a ball. The he's, movies aren't very good, but he is having a great time. Maybe he's the ultimate example of that kind of actor. Like like you were just saying, he does he does so many things that it opens him up to new kinds of roles, but yeah. he does so many... He's done so much good and so much crap that it's... You can't throw you shit can't at him. You can't dismiss any of it. Because yeah, yeah. he's done it all unabashedly. He's done it... He, he embraces all of that stuff and... I mean, that's part of what being a working actor is. I like those kinds of actors who just work, you know? And they're just they're just working. They're taking the work that comes while it's there. And they're making decisions, artistic decisions, when they can. But also, they're just kind of doing what's, on the, what's coming in the mail. And there's something really cool about that. And also, you have to be a versatile, strong actor to be able to take roles and go, oh, I can make this work. Like, I can figure it out. And there's a lot of respect for for somebody like there's got you got to have a lot of respect for somebody like that mm-hmm. and he might be the ultimate example of somebody who has weathered enough storms to the point where now it's just he can yeah he can kind of do no wrong really um yeah he's got a, a no, film coming to tiff that i'm dying to see it's one of the midnight movies uh in which he plays if i if i read the synopsis correctly because i try not to know too much um he is a parent of the he's Sorry, the film is about two kids, a brother and a sister, trying to stay alive after a virus uh, devastates the adults and turns them against their children. And he and Selma Blair are their parents, who are apparently homicidal. Okay. And I'm really hoping that you don't cast Nicolas Cage to be a rage zombie. I'm hoping that he... 
has dialogue and a character to play who is also trying to kill his kids because <laughs> that's really interesting and I'd love to see him do that you know, yeah. somebody who is he doesn't play a lot of villains I mean he did like he does at the beginning of Face Off but then the rest of it is playing the Travolta character and I like Villain Cage I like the guy who Boy. is incredibly charming and really wants to hurt you man that's a fun role for him yeah Face Off was another one that I was considering talking about oh yeah just because it's so like <laughs> it's a blast it is it really is it's whoa. It's wow. like a masterclass in it was, practical effects mania. Oh, boy. It is... I don't know if it blew my mind so much, because it was another one that I saw when I was a boy. <laughs> I don't know when it came out. Maybe I was 13. Was and processed it as one kind of movie, you know? Rewatched it a few years ago, and it blew my mind. I was like, this is one of the best movies ever made. <laughs> it is so strange and so self-aware. It's It's... It's like a B-movie with a huge budget. It's so, like... It's so unique. It's so so awful, but good, but I don't know. Well, it leans into its ludicrousness, right? It tells you right away, thanks to this drug, it's that line from Thank You for Smoking that Rob Lowe comes up with to sell uh, cigarettes in a movie about uh, space stations. I just invent a machine. You know, thanks to the blah, blah, now we can smoke in space. Here's a cigarette. (laughs) And that's what they do here. It's like, thank you. Thanks to anti-inflammatories, healing takes hours instead of days. You can be someone else right away. And it's like, never mind that John Travolta has 100 pounds on this guy. He's rounder and everything else is different. It's like, nope, okay. And once you get that, like once you clear that hump just as in adaptations like oh there's two Nicolas Cages okay yeah yeah just go with that yeah and his that's exactly right and those are the kinds of continuity things that I usually get really hung up on but I was yeah I don't care and his (laughs) that scene where he's the has the priest's robes on oh the cathedral thing yeah and he's like doing this dance thing (laughs) and it's like just ridiculous but so awesome and works and it's just I don't know it's like no movie I don't know if there's anything really comparable to Face Off. No, I don't think it should be. Yeah, no one has ever made another one like, or something like it. Even John Woo had trouble. Yeah, topping it. it, it, it is. Was it John Woo? Yeah. Why did it? Does it's Michael Bay have anything to do with no, Face Off? No, Michael oh. Bay is not involved, which is why I think it it is ludicrous and entertaining rather than just ludicrous the yeah. way like Armageddon is. Yes. Which is just yeah, noise. exactly. It's just noise. Yeah. Face Off is a blast. Face Off is fun and silly and uh-huh. things are exploding everywhere but there's also a scene where a father tries to help his child while not being her father right and it's like that's really that's a high wire act i mean the, the best movies are the ones that leave you at, yeah and it's just like you were saying about adaptation i can't believe someone thought of this i can't believe someone made it and i can't believe it works yeah and yeah cage is the guy for that i think he's Sometimes you get a wicker man where it's a gamble and it just doesn't work at all. <laughs> yeah. But he committed anyway. Like he's giving the performance that he thinks is appropriate. He's doing what his director asks of him. There's absolutely um, thought behind this. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I, I truly believe nobody sets out to make a bad movie. They happen all the time. But no one really wants to do that. Right. And instead, you get these things where, oh yeah. They really wanted to make this Rickerman about this thing, and it just doesn't like it just doesn't land. It doesn't work. Adaptation. I think everybody knew working on it that it was going to be like nothing else. You mm-hmm. can sense that kind of it vibrates with that energy. It's a really calm, placid film for most of its running time. It only gets crazy in the very end. It only gets frantic in the very end, but it knows how special it is yeah. while you're watching. I think. I yeah. Mean, you can I think feel so. it. And it could have gone wrong if it were in the wrong hands, oh, if yeah. the wrong director did it, or if the wrong actor was cast and one of the, you know. In any of It could ways, have yeah. gone so wrong because, yeah, it really is. It had to be that combination or some close combination of those people that made it. Somebody like Spike Jones who gets the screenplay and mm-hmm. knows how to execute it, like, so. And I don't know who the cinematographer was. I can look it up on the app. It'll be easier. Director of photography, Lance Accord. Oh, right. Yeah. I think he shot most of Jones' films, hasn't he? I don't know. These are things that I, as a pretty casual movie fan, sometimes pay attention to and sometimes have no idea, which is quite a shame. Doing a movie was something that I realized how vital a director of photography is, how important that is to have somebody that the director knows and trusts. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and just how much say that person has. I mean, I kind of knew, but I didn't know. Um, but yeah, very, very, very cool to, I mean, you need somebody that, that gets the vision, obviously. It, I didn't, I don't, I, I don't think I knew that for a long time, yeah. how important that is. That the director isn't, oh, the director is the king in the movie. The director does everything. They wrote it and they do all this. It's like, no, like it's a, it's a group effort, you know? Yeah. I think films with kind of flat cinematography always, it always tells me there weren't enough meetings. It always tells me that the vision wasn't communicated, like literally right. wasn't communicated. Because unless you just don't care where the camera goes, you're going to have an idea yeah. of what you want your film to look like. And I just looked up. Lance, I think it might be Acord, but he um, he shot Where the Wild Things Are and being John Malkovich, and he, okay. he worked with Jones very closely. And yeah, to, just to pull off the twinning stuff, he has to know his, his details. Right. Um, yeah, the, that stuff. It's, you, you can see it sometimes, but not in a way that you're... It's just in ways where they're probably limited in, in the technology. Yeah, the, it's the, 2002 versus 2010. Like our, yeah. When the social network was more sophisticated. And I've seen stuff since, though, that tries to do that. It's called twinning. Well, it depends on what who's talking about it. But I've, yeah, the I've double actor thing. Though. Yeah, I've seen 20. stuff since then where you're just like, oh, that's pretty bad, the blocking there. They're not even looking at it. That They waited too long. Like their interact, it, it, the the dialogue interaction is to me the most important, and then they do it so well, where it almost seems off the cuff. It seems like they are genuinely talking to each other and interrupting each other. Yeah, I was like, how how many times do they have to rehearse that? How do they figure that out? Nicholas Cage in his head going, one, two, three, like before he says, before he gets interrupted, starts again, interrupted, and then starts again. It's so so well blended and so yeah. flawless that it's like. Man, those details, those minute details in adaptation are crazy good. There's like one error, not error, it's not even an error. You can't even call, that's the thing about adaptation that's brilliant too. You could never call anything an error because the fact that there's one scene where he's talking in the mirror and you see Donald in the mirror in the background is small. Yeah. And it's clearly someone, it's like, doesn't it's, even look at all. Yeah, stand in. Right. Uh, but even that, you're like, well, but it's you know you're aware that it doesn't matter like there's no that's like the only tiny technical error that i could ever spot though but um just as a filmmaking film it's just so good too like all those technical things like yeah it is it's just it's i always i don't know why i'm repeatedly dazzled by spike jones being as good a filmmaker as he is i think it's because he makes a different movie every time like it's mm. a radical departure uh, this is different from being John Malkovich, uh, where the wild things are is completely tonally, and I mean I love it so much. Me but too. You can't put it next to this film, and I don't think people would know it was the same guy. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. Uh, and then and then her, which is a, another kind of magnificent science fiction film that isn't a science fiction film really yeah. because it's so recognizably us mm-hmm. and different, but rec- just. It's a mirror instead of a, a window into the future. It's just looking right back at us right now and insecurities and yeah and and, mm-hmm. and also step back and it's about the birth of a new life form. I mean mm-hmm. it's just yeah it's there. It's all there and it's told so in such a yeah I, I I keep underestimating him and then I start thinking <laughs> am I underestimating the movies? Is this guy one of the best American filmmakers going? <laughs> I think yeah. he might be. I think so. Um, I. I'm just fascinated by Not it. Not to mention some pretty sweet music videos. That's true. <laughs> yeah. If he had done nothing but Weapon of Choice, really. That, oh, wow. It is fascinating. But and, and he started as a skateboarder who just picked up a camera for fun. Yeah. That's the thing that stuns me, is that he's a savant. Um, and maybe that's it. You know, To break the rules as Kaufman, the real Charlie Kaufman does, and then to show us how well you understand them by having Donald. Like, Jones is that guy. Mm-hmm. He has... Like, I think he just feels movies. Yes. And and knows what's right and what's wrong and how you can bend it. Yeah. And it's just, you get this. You get something like, you get somebody who believes in the script enough to do it yeah. like this. And, whew. Yeah. And it just, yeah, it's a brilliant collaboration. Two, two brilliant minds that get each other. And uh, I'm surprised they didn't just keep doing it. Yeah. But I guess you can only, you can't keep a bird caged. To, you know, you can't, you got to let that birdie fly. Charlie Kaufman had to step out and start doing his own thing. Yeah. I'm well, glad he did because... Synecdoche and, and Anomalisa are just so... I need to revisit Synecdoche or... Syne- yeah. Synecdoche, that, yeah. I need to revisit that. I saw it in theaters and I loved it and I haven't seen it since. I need to give yeah. that one another go, uh, go but... Um, oh, it's great. I remember really liking it. 
But one as well where you're watching it and it's kind of unfolding and you're kind of, you leave the theater like, I don't know what I just saw entirely, but I liked it a lot. I need to watch it again. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It's great. I saw it at Cannes. Uh, It was like the second last thing they showed at that festival in competition for, or at least in terms of the press schedule. Uh, I saw that at, I don't know, I want to say 8.30 in the morning. It was the first thing that day and it was just, I was so good and I was so tired um, that I could fully absorb it. Yeah. Like all my resistance was down and it just came right in through the optic nerves and it's and having revisited it I'm still sure I love it. Right. But it's yeah, it it, it demands everything of you. Mm. And now it's even sadder with Philip Seymour Hoffman being gone because the whole film is about death. Right. But um oh it's so good. And yeah. he's, again, he knows what he wants. He knows what kind of story he's telling, and he finds a way to communicate it through, through the subtext of the dialogue and through a camera angle mm-hmm. to tell you what you're seeing and and how it's going to affect you. And then with Anomalisa to do it with puppets to just find another way. It's amazing. Yeah, with and with every voice being the same actor. Yeah, <laughs> which is the best, almost the best use of time. If it wasn't for Manhunter, it would be the best use of Tom Noonan because it's so. It's disquieting without know without you knowing why it's disquieting. It's mm-hmm. just like why isn't everyone so calm? It just builds the paranoia. It's great. Yeah, yeah. So um, this this basically brings us to the to the end of the, the the to the last question of the podcast, which is always the same. Which is, if anything, and I'm really curious to hear the answer in terms of music as well as acting. Uh, what if anything of adaptation have you borrowed or lifted or referenced or stolen or incorporated into your own creative DNA? I think a lot I think absorbed a lot um, mm-hmm. watching it again I was sort of like this is very much the path and this is very very presumptuous of me to say I'm not I don't consider myself Charlie Kaufman of music at all like I need to be clear about that I don't <laughs> I don't think I'm doing some new thing and I'm like this most innovative guy that nobody knows about or anything like that but it, there's something about those scenes where he's struggling to write that resonate with me so much. Um, he writes about writing really, really well. It can be very boring. Oh, a screenwriter writing a movie about a writer. Like, <laughs> okay, well, there's a lot of that. And he does it so well. He just... The the struggle and the challenge of writing um, and how when it's really good, it doesn't necessarily mean that it came easily. You know, the the work that you put into it and just waiting for something to happen, uh, he captures so well. Um, and sitting there, and the the even just the little things that because I think almost every time I sit down to write, I think of that little scene where he's he's sitting in his weird chair and his weird <laughs> typewriter that dealt to, like why does he set it up like that? But he's sitting hunched over, and I think okay, I'm gonna write. Maybe I should get a coffee. Maybe no, maybe I should write a page and then get a coffee as a reward and a muffin. And then he has another thigh, banana nut. Yeah, that's a good muffin. Like, I think I think of that almost every time. I'm sitting there looking at my computer, my guitar, and thinking about writing. And, like, I don't know, just how fruitless that can be and how pointless. And then, but you do it for those moments when he's just elated and he has a smile on his face and he's manically speaking into his tape recorder and it's just it's this idea that's flowing through him and he's so excited and then cut to the the... It's just the falling off a cliff doubt that follows that of that's not that's so stupid like how did I ever think I could write this and taking on something that's bigger than you and how do you ever how do you write a song how do you write a movie how do you do anything it's such a big thing to challenge that so many other people are doing what makes you deserving to do that what makes you deserve it of, of that um, but you still do it somehow somehow you find a way to do it despite all of those things and you somehow put it out there and, you know, you hope that people listen to it. Um, it, it just represents that, the creative arc of, of making something more than anything else I could uh, imagine. Uh, it, it's, it's like a seminar. It's, it's, a, it, it's, uh, it's a masterclass in writing, in, in going for it, in sticking with it. Um, I, it's just... Yeah, it's very inspiring. It's such a good, and it's still it's 
it's still the same, yeah, it's, it's still very much the same lessons being learned over and over for me. I, I, I will continue to l- learn those same lessons over and over with every album I do and everything, you know, and refining it, but it's, it's, it's those same lessons over and over. Mm. It's like, just stick to it and try and get past your own self-doubt and let it find a way, let it, let that art find a way through you and, yeah. So you're more of a Charlie than a Donald. I hope so. I don't know. That the maybe the that's jury's the, out on the, that's that. Fear, honestly, right? though, the fear is: Am I Donald or am I Charlie? Yeah. And does it matter? Um, that's another great. Yeah. With my music, I, I go back and forth so much. You know, am I cool? Am I not cool? Am I mainstream? Am I not mainstream? Am I a failed radio rock musician? Am I am I doing something more artsy than some of my contemporaries that? You know what? Where? What is my place in this? Like the the Donald Charlie duality that everybody has. Mm-hmm. I think, to an extent, no matter what you do, you we've all got those two guys in us. I mean, some people less than others. Some people maybe don't ever think such disparaging thoughts about themselves. But I don't know. I think to an extent, yeah, we all have those two people in us, and which one you are, and you. I guess we're all both, and you're just trying to trying to figure out which how much of which one to use at any given time maybe you know hmm. yeah i would like to i would like to believe that every artist has self-doubt because mm-hmm. that would make them try mm-hmm. you know that would force somebody to better themselves it's the ones who are all donald or at least who front themselves as all donald that are terrifying because yes they they scare me i don't me too there are some the there's certainly some all donalds out there that i perceive as full yeah pure full donald, donald. Yeah. or worse because you know, because Donald is likable too, but there's some people that are like, they just don't appear to think about anything other than making that pop hit mm. or that without any lyrical relevance, without anything innovative or interesting. And when it works, you're just like, ah. Um, and movies like that too. Uh, yeah. Just full Donald movies. <laughs> uh, all I can think of now is Donald Trump. Yeah, I, he's the ultimate Donald. The ultimate Donald. He is basically, <laughs> he's accomplished everything that a Donald would want to accomplish, and look where it got him. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's scary. You watch those guys win. You watch those bullies win, and you feel those. Watching him, and I don't want to get too into Trump now. Yeah. Obviously, it was the end of the podcast. Well, but, but yeah. who knows? Like this is coming out almost a week from when we recorded. Who knows what will happen? What'll happen? It, you, yeah, where just, when you think it can't get worse, it gets worse. But you might almost you might not be president anymore. <sighs> That'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I know. Nothing's gonna stop this guy. Yeah. My thanks to Luke Lalonde, who you can see making his acting debut in Pavanmundi Sundowners when it opens at Tiff Bell Lightbox in Toronto this Friday, August twenty fifth. And you can check out his music and his art at LukeLalonde.com. You can find Luke on Twitter at LukeLalonde, all one word. And you can find Adaptation on Blu-ray and DVD from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. And it would be really nice if Criterion gets around to it now that they're licensing stuff from Sony again. Just saying. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Um, Just don't steal any orchids this week. Thanks for listening.